0: Welcome to Foresight Friday Roundup, Foresight Health's podcast series for healthcare revolutionaries. Outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Hello again, everyone. This is Dave Berta, news editor at Foresight Health. It is Friday, September 10th. As you know, tomorrow is the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks on the U.S. I'm confident you'll be honoring and commemorating the anniversary appropriately. But today, We're going to talk about the future of telemedicine. Specifically, we're going to talk about data that shows that telemedicine visits may have reached their high watermark during the pandemic and now are receding to levels far below what many experts predicted. To tell us what's happening, why it's happening, and what happens next are Dave Johnson, founder and CEO of Foresight Health, and Julie Merchanson, partner at Transformation Capital.
1: Hi, Dave. Hi, Julie. How are you guys doing this morning, Dave? I'm marveling at the passage of time. We watched the women's semifinals of the US Open last night. It's been an incredible tournament. The two teenage winners, Layla Fernandez of Canada and Emma Radicano of Great Britain, were relatively unknown before the tournament. Both were yet to be born on September 11. I was working at Merrill Lynch as a healthcare investment banker on 9 11 after the attacks, which forced us to close our headquarters at the World Financial Center. Time seemed to stop still for quite a long period, but time is definitely marching on now.
0: Got it. Got it. Uh, I hear you. Julie, how about you? How are you?
2: Well, I won't try to compete with Dave's incredible voice, but it's official. The wheels on the bus go round and round again for our family, and we are eternally grateful for the manageable schedule coming back.
0: Great, good for you. All right, now, before we talk about what's going on with telemedicine, I wanted to ask you about your memories of 9 11. Dave, you touched on this a bit a moment ago, but where were you when you heard the news and what did you do next? Well, believe
1: it or not, I was supposed to be on a flight from O'Hare to New York City, but had to change plans. I was leading the financing team for the University of Colorado hospitals and instead needed to be in Denver. I usually took the 6 AM flight to Denver, but was tired and switched to the 8 AM flight. That turned out to be fortuitous. We, we boarded the flight, but never took off. We ended up being on the tarmac for almost four hours as the FAA grounded all the flights in the air, many of which landed at O'Hare. I was among the last to return to the terminal. There was hardly anybody left, and police with German Shepherds were scouring the terminal for explosives. So I went home, fielded calls from concerned friends, and watched the news. The next day, I went into our offices at the Sears Tower, which were largely deserted. They hadn't put in any new screening procedures yet, so I just walked in like I always had. Of course, the metal detectors and other new security measures went in shortly afterwards. Life as we knew it had changed.
0: Thanks, Dave. Julie, how about you? What were you doing when you first heard about the attacks, and uh, what did you do next?
2: Walking out of my San Francisco apartment onto work pretty early in the morning, and Tim Mills, the head of sales for our company, called me from Atlanta with what sounded like a joke, and I turned on the TV and could not believe what I was seeing. And I'm an East coaster, so I had lived on the West Coast for maybe a couple years at that point. And it was weird to be an East Coaster on the West Coast and try to process all that. And my roommate, who I'm still really close with, always makes fun of me for that day because I think I must have changed clothes five or six times that day. I couldn't quite figure out how to settle with what was happening. And, you know, we had a team of people who were trying to process it and the city of San Francisco didn't know if they were next. And it was just horrifying to know how many people I knew in New York and no one could get a hold of anybody. And it was just the cast was so personal for so many people.
0: Yeah, it is like it happened yesterday, that's for sure. I was on my way into work as news editor for Modern Healthcare at the time and didn't hear anything about it on the train ride in. When I got in, we watched it unfold like everyone else, and then we kicked into gear to get out a special edition of our Daily Dose daily newsletter. Our owner at the time, Train Communications, told us to evacuate the building, but we stayed until we got the daily dose out. And then, like all good journalists, we found a bar that was open and watched the news until we went home. And I remember walking through the loop to the train station and not seeing anyone else other than the police. It was something I'll never forget. All right. Last week, the Center for Connected Medicine and Class Research Released the results of a survey of 96 senior executives at hospitals, health systems, and medical practices. 82% of the respondents said that 20% or less of the visits to their organizations were being done virtually. The survey was conducted in May and June. Dave, does that surprise you? What do you think is happening? Does it say anything about a
1: digital divide between patients and providers? The results aren't surprising at all. Old habits and payment models die hard. At the same time, I don't believe the survey's core finding that telemedicine visits have plateaued at low levels means very much. Interviewing healthcare leaders about the future of telemedicine is a bit like interviewing the Trojans on how their war with the Greeks was going right before the Greeks sent in the wooden horse filled with their soldiers. Healthcare leaders don't fully appreciate the competitive forces coming to take away their business. In addition to the plateauing use levels, the survey found that more health systems are measuring patient use and satisfaction with telemedicine services, but that the percentage doing so is still very low. Primary care and mental health services are the biggest users of telemedicine. Healthcare leaders expect chronic disease management will be the service area most likely to expand its use of telemedicine Integration of virtual services has been relatively seamless through portals and digital front doors. Healthcare leaders identified two significant barriers to adoption. First, patient access to wireless technologies, and two, uncertainty around future reimbursement levels. Let me put my own weights on these barriers. Those are 5% for tech challenges, particularly in rural areas, and 95% for payment challenges. Here's the uptake: healthcare professionals writ large will provide telemedicine services if, and only if they get paid for them. The survey results reinforce my belief that most healthcare leaders like ostriches have their heads in the sand. Within 10 years, telemedicine aligned with support services will count for two thirds or more of healthcare visits. Amazon and other digital providers are coming. Virtual care is not a Trojan horse. Its threat to current business practices is visible for those who choose to see it. Consequently, health systems need to develop competitive virtual care platforms now or risk losing market relevance.
0: Got it, Dave. Thanks for that dose of reality. Julie, what are your takeaways from the survey? Are there any other results that reveal the future of telemedicine?
2: Not sure I'm going to be any more uplifting than Dave. My simplistic take on this is the same. These are the bricks and mortar providers who are losing certain parts of their business to competitive virtual care providers today and will have the hardest time transitioning. So this isn't surprising. Those that are transitioning are now wisely doing so in select areas or specialties that make business sense today based on revenue capture or be patient experience or other expense variables. And, you know, frankly, most virtual health business models don't forecast 100% virtual care. So it's okay that we're going at this pace at the moment. And I think we're headed down a road towards three endpoints, really. There will be some care that's entirely virtual care, as we all know, in certain circumstances, there'll be a lot of care that comes in some sort of hybrid format. I think that's where health systems are playing today, trying to figure that out or trying to avoid figuring that out. But some of those health systems will take the entirely in-person care. That's that third endpoint. So, you know, most of these respondents really do fall in those last two categories. Like Dave, you know, what the survey doesn't account for is all the other care that's being provided already virtually through folks like Accolade, who just bought flush care or Teladoc Livongo or Amazon, which has big, big plans. So... This is only one sliver of the opinion. We'll talk about this in a minute, but this study talks about how virtual care is at around 20%. And that's up from 001 percent. So I'd say that we're doing pretty well in terms of, you know, sustaining a very different level of telehealth.
0: Got it. Your glass is half full. Thanks, Julie. Dave, anything to add to Julie's comments?
1: Other than the wheels on the bus go round and round. Sure. <laughs> Even those of us who see the virtual wave coming, have trouble fully appreciating the magnitude of its potential scope and impact. Here's a story that caught my eye this week that illustrates the point. Kaiser News reported that telemedicine abortions using two doses of a drug are cheaper and more convenient than those requiring visits to abortion clinics. Historically, the FDA has required the first dose of the drug to be administered in a clinic, but studies are proving that's not necessary. Medical abortions are a financial lifeline for most family planning clinics. Replacing in-person care with telemedicine care threatens the financial viability of these clinics. Multiply this example by a thousand to get a sense of how disruptive virtual care could be to existing delivery models.
0: Got it, Dave, thank you. Now let's talk about another report on telemedicine, generally in the same vein, but this one from McKinsey that was released in July. It said telemedicine visits peaked during the pandemic and have since dropped and now have plateaued at about 38 times what they were before the pandemic. Julie, does what McKinsey said match what you're hearing and seeing in the industry? Have we flatlined on telemedicine for the foreseeable future?
2: Well, the McKinsey report came out just as the Delta was starting to impact the U.S. And frankly, the report we just talked about also doesn't really capture the effect of the Delta variant and you know all the care that's being pushed back again in all these impacted areas. So both reports have missed another blip or opportunity to really drive consumer demand. And this is not going to be a popular statement, but there's no doubt that these variants are helping push and secure virtual health place in healthcare as health systems really struggle with how they deliver care during this time again. So I'm not sure that we're flatlining as much as pushing a lot of ideas through to see what we can get stick. As I talked about before, looking at hybrid models and behavioral health, hybrid models in chronic care management, there's a lot of experimentation that's even either being thought about or being done out there or being proven out in certain areas that's really, I think, making progress. So I don't get too wrapped up in the numbers, honestly, but I will say this whole thing reminds me of 2001, which unfortunately we've been talking about today, but I'll bring a brighter side to it. I have a pretty famous sock puppet from pets.com, and I wish I were on video so I could show it to you because everyone I've worked with for the last 20 years has met my sock puppet and knows this story. And he's not just a relic, although you'd love him, Dave Berta, because he has a microphone, he's interviewing people, he's very
0: cool. (laughs) Excellent.
2: But he's a reminder of all the craziness of what the internet first promised, you know, 20 years ago. And by the way, it now delivers because Chewy.com just delivered my dog's medication this week and will also deliver his food and shampoo and bones and you name it. And I, as a consumer, love Chewy.com. So I thought about what today's healthcare sock puppet is. I'm not entirely sure, honestly, but I see parallels between our expectations of technology and also the practical reality of needing to embed this technology into novel services where physicians, clinicians, coaches, you name it, sit on one side and patients sit on the other. And it's the service part of this that we're having a big problem figuring out. And a lot of it is, most of it is driven by the reimbursement that Dave talks about, but We're starting to make progress in several areas and specialties, but how far we can push it with COVID as our kind of IV for demand is still unclear.
0: Thanks, Julie. Love the analogy there. Dave, what are your takeaways from the McKinsey report? Were there other findings that tell you about the future of the telemedicine market?
1: Were sock puppets before or after Beanie Babies I'm stuck on that one right now. (laughs) They're they're the
0: original Beanie Babies, I think, right?
1: way before. Way before, before, okay. A precursor. The headline increase in the McKinsey Report of 38 times is smaller than it first appears. This is the law of small numbers at work. 38 times growth still gets us only to the 20% use level illustrated by the class study that we discussed earlier really gets to the point Julie made in the the previous section that you know virtual care was 0.01% before we started out so we've gone from nowhere to somewhere in a relatively short period of time mckinsey is also putting a positive spin on its findings in my opinion reminds me of the old saying of making a silk purse out of a sow's ear the study updates a previous mckinsey study from a year ago on the projected use of virtual care and they estimated at that time up to 250 billion of US healthcare spend could be shifted to virtual or virtually enabled care delivery. That number is coming out a year later at about two-thirds of that projected 250 billion dollar level, so less than they were saying a year ago. Thirty-eight times for as great as that seems is also less than half the peak of 78 times that occurred in April 2020. So from February to April, we went to 78 times the use of telemedicine and now come down to 38 times. There has been increased acceptance by physicians and patients for virtual care, that's a good thing. But for me, the survey's most telling finding is that 54% of doctors said they wouldn't offer virtual services if it required them to take a 15% discount. So much for better outcomes and consumer preferences. Regulations have expanded payment for virtual care services, but they are also keeping their expansion in check. The investment community isn't overly concerned about the slow regulatory uptake or the financial concerns of healthcare professionals. They're pouring money into digital health, investing more funds in the first half of 2021 than they did in all of 2020, which itself was a record year. Virtual care is where the irresistible force of digital health meets the immovable objections of the healthcare industrial complex. I'm betting on a digital care triumph and may the force be with them.
0: Thanks, Dave. Sounds like you're trying to make a sack puppet out of a sow's ear. (laughs) (laughs) Button. <laughs> Julie, any, anything to add to Dave's comments?
1: I'm going to have
2: to send a picture of the sock puppet. You know, first of all, I love, Dave, that you highlighted that McKinsey actually admitted that they were a little bit overzealous last year in their estimates because that takes a lot for McKinsey to admit things like that. But I'd say this. Don't underestimate two things. One is McKinsey has seen a lot of revolution happen in other industries. And even though we are special and different and a unicorn- They have seen what has happened to consumerism. And that gets to my second point. Don't underestimate consumers. We are heading into the roaring 20s and we want life the way it was before, but we also want life to be better and we want to do it our way. And I think that you're going to see plenty of non-health system providers take advantage of that in a very consumer-friendly way, digitally and with fantastic
1: experience. So watch out. Thanks, Julie. Amen to that, Julie, by the way. Amen to that.
0: Yeah. No, it'll be interesting to see who fills the void and uh, runs away with the market. Okay. Let's briefly talk about other big healthcare news that happened this past week. Julie, what other news stopped you in your tracks this week?
2: Well, I'm not going to pretend this is a headline, but for me, it was hearing that HLTH is actually happening in person because I would pretty much convinced myself that they'd have to go virtual. I mean, thousands of people inside a convention center in October in New England just didn't all compute for me. But the show must go on. And I'm personally excited that they are going the extra mile to do everything they can to create a safe environment so that we can continue to thrive amid the COVID waves.
0: Got it. Thanks, Julie. Dave, what other healthcare news had you scratching your head this past week?
1: Well, not scratching my head, but for me, the big event this week was Biden's move to make vaccinations mandatory for larger chunks of the American public, particularly its workforce public. That will be a major focus of news coverage and political debate in the coming weeks. Personally, I'm glad the president is taking a harder line. Anti-vaxxers are making daily life in America harder for everyone, plus mandates work.
0: Yeah, thank you. Uh, for me, it was the state of Idaho giving its approval for hospitals there to ration care because they're being overwhelmed by COVID patients. I've been covering healthcare for nearly 40 years, and I've never seen anything like that before. Very, very interesting. So get vaccinated. It protects you and protects those around you from a potentially deadly virus. And guess what? It's free. All right. Thanks, Dave. And thank you, Julie. That is all the time we have for today. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed, please visit our website at foresighthealth.com. You also can find a recording of this podcast and all our podcasts on the Healthcare Now radio network, iTunes, Spotify, and other streaming services. Subscribe now and don't miss another segment of the best 20 minutes in healthcare. Thanks for listening. I'm Dave Berta for Foresight Health.